Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I actually think that by focusing on helping a lot of people and solving problems for the greatest number of people, you actually have the opportunity to build the most successful business as well, right? And I think... And they always say like money, love, happiness, the three things you can't find by chasing, but you get by just doing what you love. <laughs> I think this is a, that's kind of a, a classic example here, which is entrepreneurship. And I didn't realize I was being taught entrepreneurship, right? As I was just trying to make the basketball team or get through my one problem after another. But entrepreneurship is really just about solving problems. And that problem can be as small as something for yourself, or it can be something as big as trying to fix some like access to healthcare or access to education or, or housing affordability, right? But by solving problems for the greatest number of people, you actually are creating the greatest amount of value for society, which in turn does lead to business success. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Encore, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hello, hello. It is my absolute pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you through way of um, our mutual friend, Bridget, who uh, was a guest here years ago um, and somebody who I've always looked up to and admired. So when she recommended you and I saw you know, what you're up to in the world, I thought, yeah, this is kind of a no brainer. I love everything this guy is about. He's actually dealing with problems that are problems that I have. So uh, to me, that was a, you know, a big hell yes moment. Um, but before we get started on on your work. Uh, I want to start by asking you a question that I know part of the answer to, uh, because we've had your dad here as a guest, but what did your parents do for work and how did that end up influencing and shaping the choices that you've made with your own life and career? Cause you make such a complicating question. Sounds so simple. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I grew up in Seattle <clears throat> to, uh, to an American dream kind of crazy story. It doesn't even exist anymore, but you know, my, my parents came here, uh, to the United States from India um, one of those like truly, I mean, unbelievable stories you hear of just growing up in a, like my dad grew up in a poor village and the idea of ever even coming to the United States, um, was pretty far fetched growing up. Right. And I think 
it's it's pretty inspiring to think that from that moment, a series of accidental events that became opportunities that became uh, really unique moments for uh, his career led to kind of becoming at the center of the original dot com boom and you know being early at Microsoft and then leading into starting some of the largest technology companies um, of that era. And so it was, I mean, it was pretty crazy to kind of grow up. I mean, when I was born, we still uh, you know, had just me, my dad and mom had just moved into their first small home that they had borrowed money for, or got a mortgage to buy. And I, uh, watching him quit his job, put everything on the line to start a company and, and turn it into a $40 billion tech behemoth was a pretty wild experience for, you know, uh, being a kid at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I can tell you, like, it's funny. I'd say one of the biggest things that we I found just when I think about my my early childhood, it was everything was so um, strict, <laughs> like a, like a traditional Indian family is. Yep. It was uh, it was very hard to kind of get around things unless I could come up with a creative solution that worked for everyone, right? And I think about some of these times and moments where. If, let's say I wanted to buy something and my parents were very, very kind of tight on budgets with all of us as kids, right? It was never as simple as a lot of my friends who could just go out and say, well, no problem. I'll just go make, you know, make some quick money and buy it myself. The response that my parents would give me was, that's great. Go buy yourself that pair of shoes and you can also pay for school while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a familiar conversation with my parents. I remember when I got my first job at McDonald's and my mom was insistent that I diversify my breakfast. And I was like, great, I'll buy my own damn Mago waffles. And she's like, you think you're a hotshot because you have a job at McDonald's? It, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Indian parents are the absolute best at guilt tripping me. I remember once I came back with like, you know, not the best grades. And instead of scolding me like, uh, like you might think they would, my dad looked at me and he goes, you know, I'm just, I'm just sad to see you. Look, if you, you know, I always thought you were the smart one in the family, but if you're telling me that's the best you can do and the B is the best you can get, you know, it is what it is. And we can go get ice cream like all your friends did for their Bs. Way to, way to motivate. Yeah. I mean, talk about what do you say to that? You say, yes, I'm the dumb one. Or do you gotta figure out how to get the A? It was, um, it was brilliant and brutal at the same time. Um, yeah. But, but it does force you to be creative, right? And I think like what what I what I really did appreciate growing up, and something that you know I don't know if this was an, an intentional method to the madness or just a function of who my parents were, but while there was very strict rules, <clears throat> any creative solutions they would come up with were always uh, welcomed and kind of expected, right? So you know, there's a story I've I've told this a couple of times, but I think it's a it's one that you might enjoy. I remember in, a, in seventh, eighth grade, uh, as you can imagine, I was a pretty skinny Indian kid in my class, but I was determined to make the basketball team. You know, <laughs> I, I thought, uh, you know, here's my shot. I'm going to make the team. I can shoot the ball. And, if, and I, I had for some reason convinced myself that the key to making the middle school basketball team was proving to the coach that I could dunk the ball. And I was like a five foot six skinny Indian kid. That was a pretty audacious concept. But I had seen a, you know, an ad for these 
things called a jump sole plyometric shoes or whatever. It's like some gimmicky workout device that was like to help you with your your uh, vertical jump. (laughs) So here I am and I go to my parents and I'm like, mom, dad, I need to buy these shoes. Like they're going to, I mean, if I use them and I train with it, I'm going to be able to make the basketball team. And they look at it and it was like $150 for these shoes. They smartly knew there was no shot I was ever making the varsity team <laughs> in seventh grade. <laughs> they were like, they just said, there's no way we're, there's no way we're spending $150 on these shoes for you. Like, go find another sport you're good at. <laughs> so, um, being told no was never my forte. Um, and I was determined to find a way to make this, uh, to make, to impress the coach. So like any other good nerdy kid did, rather than uh, going to make the money, which wasn't going to work, I came up with this crazy plan to set up a partnership with a company that makes the jump sole. So so at 11 years old, I had never like coded a website or anything before, but I had seen a bunch of people that I knew building websites and doing cool partnership deals with brands. So I sat down and started learning coding and built a, a web portal which at the time was like a whole became a whole company, but it was a uh, it was one of the first websites where you could actually go online and text message your friends from your computer. This was back in like the Nokia phone days, and I had seen <clears throat> through some of the modern tech stuff how like back in the day you could only text cell phone to cell phone, 160 character limit. So what if I could text people through my computer screen uh, and my laptop or my desktop instead of having to type T nine two 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 five 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 over and over and over again. So I built out what was one of the first web to mobile messaging systems and got this thing launched. The first thing I did was call up the company that makes jump soles. I was 11 years old, probably still had a prepubescent voice and asked to speak to the CEO, like, <laughs> which is just the dumbest. <laughs> Somehow this company connected this like 11 year old kid with the CEO of the company. And I said, hey, I'm launching this new website for teenagers to text message each other. I think it's a great audience for all of your uh, potential buyers of your jump soles. Uh, I'd love to make you my featured brand ad on our website if I could just try out a pair of your jump soles. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe the guy felt pity for me or something, but he, he agreed to the deal. I put a giant jump soles ad on our site and uh, he sent me a free pair of the deluxe ones. I, um, I still didn't make the team, but I did get my my jump soles, and that was the kind of that was the kind of culture that my parents had at the house, which was if you can find a creative win win solution, um, it was all you. But if you thought you were going to shortcut, um, you were going to bear the full cost of that. Right? Wow! I have to ask: Did you ever actually manage to dunk? No, I touched the rim though. So. <laughs> I, I can relate as the person who got the shit beat out of me on a seventh grade football team and was the most improved player on my basketball team. There you go. So how old were you when your parents' financial situation started to change? Uh, probably seven or eight years old. So there are two questions that come from that for me. One, were you aware of what was going on at that age? Uh, that's the first thing. and. I think just based on, on, you know, what I know you've chosen to do, which we'll talk about, it seems like you have almost an, you know, a really just off the charts level of awareness of the amount of privilege that you were blessed with growing up. And that's not common for people who grew up in your circumstances, as we've seen from like dynasty wealth. Why do you think that is? I'll start 
obviously I feel very lucky to have had a chance to grow up and, and frankly more so even just from the experiences that 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 afforded me to learn and grow but don't forget I mean I I I started washing my parents with no money and we had I mean there was when I when we were my dad was starting his first company I mean we had to we sold our car he would sometimes walk to work in the snow right we were it was like it was a it was a process right and at any given moment uh it could all be taken away and i think seeing watching him work you know 20 hours a day my mom spending 24 hours a day taking care of us and working with him at the same time building this company um i mean it's, it, it was inspiring right it shows you that anything can be possible right i mean it, like i said my dad grew up in a village in india where they didn't have food for you know multiple meals at a time right so to even have the freedom to say that you're going to go after an idea that's big and audacious um was inspiring to watch and then to watch that grow and then to also just three years later see the dot-com crash i mean it just reminds you that all of this comes and goes right and at the end of the day what i thought what i took away from all this is that the best part about this country in my mind was the idea that anybody should and could have the ability to work hard and create something. I think, unfortunately, as I've gotten older and as kind of the, my generation has kind of entered the workforce, I think a lot of that American dream has started to disappear. And for too many people my age, that opportunity no longer exists, right? And that's yeah. been quite frustrating and, and and difficult to watch. And it's been a lot of the inspiration for a lot of the work that I've done. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So I want to share a clip with you from uh, the conversation I had with your dad, just to hear your take on it. Take a listen. Interesting thing is the kids always want to make the parents proud. And your job as parents really is to let them know what makes you proud of them. And I think, you know, to some extent, we can talk a little bit more about because we do have three children who have been just amazing things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I go back and look back and say, what got us there? And to some extent, there's always a lot of luck. At the same time, there were things that we did which were counterintuitive. Number one was we always separated the thing about us loving them and us approving of them. So I always told them that you never, ever have to second guess, do we love you? But you always have to always wonder if we approve of the things that you are doing. And those are two separate things. That means we told them what makes what makes us proud of them. So I would tell them, I see what Success is not about how much money you have in the bank. Success comes from how much, how many lives you've been able to improve on. The success is about really building that self-worth. And the self-worth only comes from not what you own. Self-worth comes from what you create. And if you own a lot, but you haven't created anything, you're still a parasite on society. So I, I had to ask you about that uh, because that clip just struck me so much right when I found out that, you know, uh, Naveen was your dad. I remembered that part of the conversation. And <clears throat> what I wonder is, you know, watching your dad build this business, how did that impact the relationship between the two of you while you were growing up? I mean, our the truth is our family was all super close um, and supportive. And I think from a very, very <clears throat> young age, even before he started this, the, the idea of integrating our growing up, our childhood with the work that our parents did was was very core. Um, I would go to the office almost every day after school and sit there and do my homework there and get to listen in on meetings and see things. Um, 
from like five years old, right? And when he was doing his IPO roadshow, I would travel with him. Uh, <clears throat> I do think just kind of, if you take a step back, it's interesting listening to that quote. I'd say probably one of the most important things that my parents did with us uh, from a kind of value and culture perspective was it was this idea that at the end of the day, like if anything ever messed up, um, like my dad used to say to us, you know, if you get in trouble and you do something dumb, always, always make me the first call. It was net. He goes, and I promise you, if you're in trouble or something's wrong, we're not going to spend five minutes or one minute or 30 seconds scolding you. It'll be, what do we do to fix it going forward? And it's, and, and that those moments happened and they came and, and he, and both of them were like that. And it was very problem solution focused. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, for many of my friends growing up, you know, if you got in trouble, you wouldn't hear the end of it. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason that's that, that little lesson has played a huge part in our, in kind of my career too, in my, in the way that I've approached, it doesn't matter like any startup you're in, any business you're working on, you're going to have ups and downs. And I think that calm, steady, solution-focused approach, no matter how bad the problem is, how big of an issue you're facing, um, played a really, really critical role in being able to get where I am today. And then the second thing, which is what you referenced in that video or that audio clip, is this idea of success being really a function of how many people you impact. The only thing I would say differently from what my dad said, though, is that I don't actually think they're mutually exclusive. I actually think that by focusing on helping a lot of people and solving problems for the greatest number of people, you actually have the opportunity to build the most successful business as well. Right. And I think and they always say, like, money, love, happiness, are the three things you can't find by chasing, but you get by just doing what you love. <laughs> Um, and I think this is a, that's kind of a a classic example here, which is entrepreneurship. And I didn't realize I was being taught entrepreneurship, right. As I was just trying to make the basketball team or get through my one problem after another, but entrepreneurship is really just about solving problems. And that problem can be as small as something for yourself, or it can be something as big as trying to fix, fix some like access to healthcare or access to education or, or housing affordability. Right. Um, but by solving problems for the greatest number of people, you actually are creating the greatest amount of value for society, which in turn does lead to business success and other kind of elements. Yeah. So I guess the reason that, you know, I asked about the relationship with you and your dad is, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the brutal part of it, which I think that it, it's funny. You know, I was thinking about all the things that, you know, my parents did, which sound very similar. And I realized that everything that I thought was a pain in the ass about the way they raised me while growing up has been incredibly beneficial as an adult. Um, but, you know, to your point, it's sort of problem solution. And I don't, I'm just curious, like how love is expressed in your family, because I realized one thing, you know, sitting in a therapist office, like your primary love languages are 
words of affirmation and physical touch. I'm like, great. The two things that my parents have no intention of ever giving me because that's just not how Indians are. Like, I remember the first time I ever saw my parents kiss. I was like, that's disgusting. I wish I could unsee that. And I was probably well into my like late 20s or even early 30s. Um, But on the flip side of that, there's something really interesting because even my roommate, when he hears my parents call, he's like, your parents are always yelling at you. I was like, dude, they're not yelling. That's just how Indians talk. We're loud. Um, And I realized like then they'll just do random things like my dad will be like, hey, we just sent you guys two air filters because we know the air is damp in your apartment, you know, or hey, there's pajamas coming from Costco. Why? Because they're on sale. And so I wonder what your own experience of this has been. You know, I think for for us, it was very much a balance. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think all of us were able to be functioning human beings today. Uh, probably more so even because of my mom than anybody, anything else. Right. Um, and that, that balance actually worked quite well for our family where she really did bring a lot of that love and affection and, and connection in the, in the more traditional sense. And my dad brought that in a very supportive sense, which was you always knew he was there for you, whether or not he was saying it to you. Right. Yeah. And that balance, I think allowed us to have that kind of complete, just safety net in your life. And I think that's something that is also just really important for families um, everywhere, right? As is, is, is a kid, it's just knowing that you have people that have your back no matter what. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of uh, kids growing up, that that's not always a given. Yeah. Wow. So um, I think this is make a perfect segue to your career. And, and where I want to do uh, use a, as a jump off point is something that Justine Musk told me when I interviewed her. And she was telling me about, you know, being divorced from Elon Musk. And one of the challenges of that being that, you know, coming out of a marriage, you know, where you're in the shadows of this sort of iconic giant. And I wonder for you, like having a dad who was so prominent um, when you're thinking about sort of shaping your career, how do you think about sort of not being, you know, like stuck in his shadow and forming your own identity when you went about your career? That's, so that's actually never really been a thing. Uh, yeah. So from a pretty, like I said, from a pretty young age, and this is like the fun part of this whole thing, right? Is I had a front row seat and arguably like an on-court experience actually building stuff with my dad. And one of the things you can probably appreciate with immigrant parents is they still do everything they do for their kids, right? And so at every step of the way, it was really about like everything he did was also working to help give me an opportunity and a platform to kind of level up on what he's built, right? And I think that's a, uh, it's really valuable play. Like I'll tell you, Remember that little wireless company I was telling you about? Mm-hmm. So, you know, call like two years later, I remember I was I, really interested. I just found out about like all these search companies. This is like Overture, find what these companies back. <laughs> I remember this that. Is, this is like a, this, these are the days of paid search where the results that you got weren't on the side, but they were actually the results. And these companies would get paid per click on these results. And it was a pretty meaningful amount of, money that these companies would make just by incorporating search. And I remember I kept emailing and emailing these companies like Overture and Find What and all these guys asking to do a deal with me so that I could put their results on my website because, God, if I could make a little bit of money when I was 13 years old for other you know, fun stuff, that could be cool. 
um, and, you know, build a good business. And uh, obviously none of these guys ever got back to me. <laughs> and one day I was at school and my, my cell phone rang and it was my dad. So I stepped out of class to pick it up and he goes, Encore, I have John here for you. He's the CEO of, you know, I think Findwater Overture at the time. And he goes, why don't you pitch him on your idea now? Right. And, uh, and like on the spot, I was learning how to pitch these guys and figure out and, you know, I ended up coming to a deal with that guy at the time, which probably underpaid me, but it was still uh, an opportunity. And so that idea of kind of shadow or competition was, was never there just because it was such a supportive uh, relationship back and forth. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Walk me through the trajectory of your career and, and you know, what led you to start <laughs> focusing on the problems that you are solving today? So about, you know, it's funny, you, you mentioned you graduated business school. It's the 08 crisis. Um, yeah. I started undergrad going to uh, Wharton the, as business school undergrad in 07, 08. So I started getting deciding I was going to go into business formally right before the world collapsed on me. Right. And in 2008, when things stopped, all of a sudden it was like my entire school. I mean, Wharton was a factory for bankers and consultants. Right. And in 2008, that whole ecosystem just shut down. But, you know, like we discussed before, every crisis is an opportunity. And so all of a sudden I was thinking, there's all these smart people who are graduating from Penn and all these other schools around us. No one has jobs. <clears throat> what if this was an opportunity to refocus some of the best talent on building technology companies? Right? And the idea at the time was that there was such a anti-business kind of feeling in 2008. I remember Occupy Wall Street and these different kind of protests and movements. I said, well, what if we could show the world that business is actually a force for good? And that you can actually solve big problems um, through technology. And for all these smart people, like, again, you have no opportunity cost of going into banking and consulting anymore. Why not put your life towards something that can actually make a difference? And so we started an incubator in 2008 and started recruiting some of the top young people um, coming out of Stanford, Harvard, Wharton, NYU, you know, all the Berkeley to start building businesses. And it was a confluence of things that were happening at the time with the iPhone had just launched. Facebook was just becoming a thing. And all of a sudden, within a couple of years of launching this incubator, we had spun out a few billion dollars worth of companies, all started by people in their early 20s, working on different kind of stuff in clean water, clean energy, consumer products, like all with this idea that solving big problems is an opportunity to build big businesses. Um, and that was the kind of entry point into my career today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, one of the questions that are, arises from that for me is, you know, kind of where technology has kind of gone off the rails too, right? Because, you know, we, we started Facebook with this idea that, oh, you know, we want to make the world more open and connected. And yet in a lot of ways, it's done the opposite. It's connected, but divided, um, you know, and you know, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Cal Newport, who's been a vocal critic of all of these things, almost to to a fault, I think. Because, um, you know, I, I think that there have been benefits from a lot of these, but I also think there have been downsides. Now, somebody who's been, you know, at the, the forefront of some of this, when you see some of what's happening today, um, you know, obviously inequality, you know, the things that have resulted from the just sheer amount of wealth, you know, we were talking before we hit record uh, about San Francisco and how ridiculous it is to live there. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? Do you, you feel like, you know, we have to course correct or do you feel like we're headed in the right direction still? I mean, because yeah. I, I feel like in so many ways, um, we've built so many behemoths that are, you know, the people who've built them are no longer really even able to control them. They've built monsters that they can't figure out how to tame. And I, I can't help but think of the book, The Filter Bubble by Eli Pariser, where he talks about the fact that like, you know, as great as all this has been, it's actually put many of people into filter bubbles and it's kind of reduced our awareness of what is going on around us. Yeah. Well, look, 
technology at its best, I've always believed, increases the quality of a service and democratizes access, right? I mean, that's what the personal computer did. That's what Google has done with information. That's what Apple, I mean, you've heard this thing over and over again, right? That in the palm of our hand, we have more computing power than the astronauts had landing on the moon in the 1960s, right? And that has been unbelievable. It's a direct result of some of the smartest minds and capital flowing into places like Silicon Valley. The problem is that over the last few years, um, and I and I frankly, it's funny, you said you're a business school guy. I'll blame this on all of my f- fellow business. Like, the minute MBA <laughs> business school guys started moving to the Valley, you knew something was wrong, right? Like, yeah. Silicon Valley worked because it was not cool to be an entrepreneur. I mean, being an entrepreneur meant you were unemployable at any major bank or consulting institution. And yep, I think what happened, <laughs> what happened, unfortunately, is that with all of that capital and all that money in the, in the Valley started getting redirected to just useless crap, right? And so you have now, you know, people that are building like blockchain this, drone that, VR this, that any sense of the problem they're actually trying to solve. They're just building products in search of a problem. And if you remember, we started this conversation with the idea that entrepreneurship at its core was always about solving a problem first, Right. And I remember like, I got sucked into this. I mean, I got sucked into the valley and I started a company there after my first incubator. And we were right in the sweet spot of all this hype and buzz and then sold it to IAC where they had me go run Tinder's product. And we were even more at the center of like, you know, there's only so much you can do helping people get laid. I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> yeah. And as, and as exciting as that, you know, as crazy as that experience was like, at some point, you got to stop and look at yourself and say, there's billions of dollars going into this. And I remember for me, that specific moment was in 2017, after I had left Tinder, I was looking for my next big thing to try to go work on and dedicate to. And I was in San Francisco meeting with a, a venture capitalist whose name I won't say. And he started, started his pitch to me with, Encore, I have a company you need to come look at. They're going to change the world. It's right up your alley. It's the kind of stuff that really can make it totally change the way people operate. I was like, well, that's a pretty compelling way to start a pitch. And he proceeds to tell me that they're about to put $100 million into a blockchain-based sticker company that had a deal with LVMH to create digital purses and wallets and bags that couldn't be replicated allowing people to have their own unique, whatever, stupid product purse or whatever, right? Yeah. And I just couldn't, I, I remember just sitting there so dumbfounded that all that this was the idea that this prominent venture capitalist thought was going to change the world. And as if on cue, I walked outside his office, just annoyed and frustrated for having spent an hour with him. And on Market Street, which is like this right across, you know, like the main crosses downtown San Francisco, there was a homeless person with his pants down, standing in the middle of the street with a bird scooter, humping the scooter handle. And this was like a week after Bird had raised $200 million. And I couldn't, I mean, could not have had a more photo perfect representation of what was wrong with Silicon Valley. You have a city with more money than God. You have some of the smartest people in the world talking about changing the world 
And in their own backyard, right outside, you have one of the worst housing crises, one of the worst mental health and healthcare crises, massive access to financial service challenges. And you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars going into electric scooters. Right. Um, and that was the moment where I said to myself, there's got to be a way to fix this again. Like, this is a clear problem that someone has to do something about. Right. And you look at these sectors like we talked about, I mean, the housing issue, the healthcare crisis, the financial services, student loans. Right. These aren't nonprofit issues like these are trillion dollar industries that are just failing this next generation of consumers. I mean, you've gone through this more friends than I, I care to admit have had to deal with this. Like you go to school thinking you're doing everything right, following yeah. the guidance they give you. And all that you end up with is coming out of college with a hundred thousand dollars of student loans, right? a job in a city where rent eats up half your salary. And you're just on this kind of rat wheel always trying to play catch up and never really getting a chance to get ahead. Right? And that is, a, that is a failure of the system that can be fixed with innovation, not a given um, like people have kind of taken it to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was the part of the, the story when Bridget sent your pitch that immediately caught my attention because um, you mentioned student loans. Like I have a mountain of student loan debt. I remember talking to Ramit about it and uh, when Ramit Sethi, when he was here and I, I revealed how much it was and it's high. It's, you know, like a, right around like 200K. And I remember thinking I had a friend that, that I was talking to in business school. He was like, you know how people get out of this debt? Their parents die and they collect life insurance. I was like, what the hell? Like, I don't want that to be the end result because this is something I've asked so many people and you're working on this problem. I, you know, I was like, I was a C minus economic student at Berkeley. And even I am well aware of the fact that there's only so long you can keep lending money out and not getting it back before there are systemic consequences. Even Chase Jarvis said, he's like, people say that this is actually at the heart of what is an economy that is stagnant because, you know, young people are not starting families. They're not buying houses. We really like our, our literally our attitudes for some of my friends are like either it's like 50 cent, get rich or die trying. Otherwise, we're never getting out of this mess. So, and so I wonder, how do you solve a problem of this proportion for so many damn people? And so this is where this is where things start to get kind of fun and interesting. Right. So one of the other like one of the other really great tidbits that I always heard growing up from my parents was this great quote. Right. <laughs> Innovation is not about thinking outside the box. The best innovation comes from thinking about a problem from a different box, right? In other words, you're not going to solve the problem by just looking at the same structure and thinking about it over and over again. It actually comes from just looking at other models and asking yourself how it applies here, right? How can we use data analysis to rethink car transportation by routing cars differently? That's the birth of kind of everything from delivery services to ride sharing, right? How can we use a field like AI to change healthcare? And in the case of some of these problems that we're talking about, we looked at stuff like housing costs, right? And we just asked the really stupid questions, which were like, when you move into an apartment in say San Francisco, you're already in student loans, you're trying to get a job, but you haven't made any money yet. And now your landlord wants you to pay first month rent, last month rent, and a security deposit. Right. So like take an average rent of, say, in San Francisco, three thousand a month, which is outrageous. And you're yeah. talking about needing, you know, nine thousand dollars just to move into the damn apartment. Right. 
Now, <clears throat> that security deposit, which is um, one month's rent, turns out there's $45 billion across the United States locked up in escrow accounts just sitting there for security deposits. Wow. That's money that you and our friends and everybody else can be taking and putting towards paying down their student loans or investing in the markets or using as emergency savings in case something comes up. <clears throat> but instead, it sits there locked up with your landlord and everybody just does it because that's how things have worked year after year after year. But if you think about it, when you rent anything else in life, they don't ask you for a big cash deposit to just sit there. Like if you go rent a car from Hertz, they don't say, hey, by the way, Shri, if you could just give us $10,000 in case you get into an accident, you yeah. can drive the car for the 10 bucks a day. Right? That's crazy. They ask you for $5 a day for insurance, and that's what covers you if you get into an accident. Right? Mm. Why can't the same concept apply for housing? And so one of the first things we did three and a half years ago was say, look, the first step in making a dent in this kind of financial situation for our generation is we have to put money back in people's pockets and make things more affordable. And so we said, let's start with this $45 billion locked up in security deposits. And we went out and we created a win-win-win solution. So we found insurance companies to underwrite a new type of insurance that we call security deposit insurance. And now, instead of giving your landlord a thousand or two thousand dollars of cash to just sit there in an escrow account, which by the way, by law, they can't even touch, right? You now instead can just pay five dollars a month for insurance that protects your landlord and lets you keep your money right, and use it towards wow. that actually uh, have an impact in your life. So, you know, we, we, we created that product. It works for the landlord. It works for the renter. And we brought it to market. And in, you know, in less than three years, we've now grown that to over a million apartments across the country. You know, last year alone during COVID, when people needed money more than any, more than anything else, you had 40% unemployment. We gave back a quarter billion dollars to renters just by unlocking their security deposit. And we're now even working with policymakers. Republicans and Democrats, by the way, to create laws that give every renter access to that type of insurance alternative so they can get that money back, right? The mayor of Cincinnati, Mayor Cranley, and I put, passed the law, which will unlock $100 million in just Cincinnati alone. In Atlanta, we passed a law that will unlock almost $800 million <clears throat> for renters in that city. Right. So while Congress is out there bickering and fighting over a $1,400 stimulus check, we're putting an average of $1,500 back into people's pockets almost overnight. And I think all of that goes back to those core things we started this combo off with, which is how do you really make an impact in people's life? How do you do that in a way that builds a business model that's sustainable? Because that's probably the only way to really scale change. And then can you do it in a way that's a win-win-win for all the stakeholders involved, right? Yeah. And historically, like housing is just one example, but the same in healthcare, the same in student loans. It's almost always a win-lose. Anything good for the landlord is bad for the renter. If it's good for the renter, it's bad for the landlord. And if you just start to look at other models of inspiration, right, like car rentals, <clears throat> all of a sudden, you could figure out how to apply that kind of idea as an innovation in the housing sector. Right? Yeah.
Wow. So you know, this, I'm glad you brought up politicians because I was going to, that was going to be my next question is, is, you know, one, how do you deal with sort of the regulatory hurdles and the bureaucratic bullshit? Because, you know, like I say, to your point, I, I was, as I was watching Congress bicker for six months and watching people suffer, I couldn't help but think a bunch of kindergartners could have done this more <laughs> effectively than these idiots. You know, yeah. I'm like, they, you know, it's like, I remember watching Steve Mnuchin. Like I said, I have a C minus, you know, economics GPA, and I felt like I could have made better policy. Uh, so that that's one one component of this. But I think, but the part of this that's you know more interesting to me is I think there's a whole psychological component to this. Um, one of my roommates, he said, you know, any good le- society is driven by some level of self interest. You know, people like you and I start companies and build things because obviously there's a component of self interest involved. But I yeah. think that you know one thing that I've thought about a lot is how you know, we have pushed that self-interest to the point of diminishing returns, which is why we have this kinds of situations we do and why people like you need to build the things you do. So one, how do you address that issue of, you know, excessive self-interest in a society that is completely interdependent? Because, you know, my dad once told me a story about sanitation workers in India. And, you know, as well as anybody, India is a country of extremes, like extreme wealth and extreme poverty. And he said the sanitation workers went on strike. People didn't value them because they're sanitation workers. But he said the moment they went on strike, everybody realized, wait a minute, these guys are actually incredibly integral to a society that functions well, especially in a country that's already polluted. Yeah. So how do you address that part of this? Fight it. There's a great quote that I, you know, who knows if it actually was said, but it's been told to me by enough people that I believe (laughs) that it was said. And I love it, which was, there was a shareholder meeting uh, for Amazon, and one of the shareholders asked Jeff Bezos, what do you think will change most over the next 10 years that will shift the way Amazon thinks about its product offerings? And he said, everybody asked that question, but it's the wrong question. The question I would ask is, what, are the, what is the thing that will not change over the next 10 years that affects Amazon's business? And he said, the answer is core human behavior. Human behavior doesn't really change. People still read books. They may just read it on a tablet. People still need groceries, whether they get it from my website or from a grocery store. People still want to meet people. People still want to, you know, go out and, and, and do certain activities, right? And so when you think about that from a business perspective, a lot of companies try very hard to change behavior. And what I would say is, Rather than trying to change it, can you create a solution that actually does work because it satisfies everyone's self-interest, right? And so you take something like this company, Rhino, that we built for security deposit insurance. I mean, take the most selfish kind of desire of each stakeholder involved. You have landlords who they under no circumstance want to give up the certainty of having one month of protection, even if it means hurting their renters, right? That's their selfish desire because they don't want to take any risk, even if nine out of 10 renters are good people, right? So they want that protection. But they also want to sign leases and close units because they want to make sure they fill up their apartments and maximize their rent revenue, right? A renter wants to keep as much money in their pocket because life is so damn expensive and you also, but at the same time, you also need housing. So you're stuck between having to do what a landlord wants and wanting to save money. You've got us as a business who want to build a successful business that can help you, but also make money. And we see that 
billions of dollars are being kept away when only a tiny percent of renters actually cause the damage that caused real losses for a landlord. That's literally insurance in a nutshell. And all of a sudden you have a win-win-win solution where it's in everyone's interest to switch, right? But it requires kind of challenging the status quo model and getting people to think differently. So, you know, that to me is like how you, how you deal with this is just don't fight it, understand yeah. the court. And by the way, same thing for the politicians. You brought up regula- regulators, but like, don't forget, what is a politician there? Like a politician at the most selfish level wants to get reelected, right? And how do they get reelected? They get reelected or elected to a higher office by doing things that their constituents view as beneficial to them. Yeah. What better way to look good as a politician than giving every resident, you know, up to 1400 bucks on average back in their pocket without hurting the landlords who are your donors, without having to raise taxes on your other donors, <laughs> right? It's yeah. like a, it's a very selfish, self-interested thing to do that just happens because of the way we've kind of created the product to really help a lot of people. And I think that's mm-hmm. how you build these sustainable businesses. Yeah. So I guess that raises you know, a couple more questions. One is when you see, you know, projects like universal basic income, you know, and the pilot programs that I know Y Combinator, what do you, given, you know, the work that you're doing, do you think that that is an excuse for people to be lazy? Cause I mean, even Andrew Yang, who was here, uh, you know, when he was running for president, had said, he's like, this would solve so many problems for so many people. And it, he said, you know, he said, if you go and look at sort of the typical sort of social welfare structures, he said just the bureaucracy alone is so costly to maintain that it would be cheaper to just give people the money. Yep. So Andrew and I, we've, we, we've done a lot with him. Um, and I wholeheartedly agree that giving people cash is probably more effective than trying to deploy that money through a web of government bureaucracy through services the government provides. Right. But I don't think that solves the underlying issues of the way society functions. Right. The fact that housing is still so expensive isn't going to change if everyone has an extra 1400 bucks or thousand dollars a month. Right. If anything, that'll probably just raise the cost, but I'll give you another (laughs) example. We spend a lot of time thinking about this, right? And if you take a look at housing as another example of like, how can you think from a different box? We know the primary driver of high rent costs is the shortage of housing supply in metropolitan areas where the jobs are, right? If you were to think about what could fundamentally change that, most politicians, most people in the space are thinking about how do you build in cities more effectively and efficiently? Do you do taller buildings? Can you remove permitting costs? Can you change tax code structures? All of that to try to fit 10% more efficiency out of the housing supply in a city, right? But if you start to think about that problem from a tangential lens, why do people care to live in cities in the first place? Because it's close to the job. It's close to the restaurants, this nightlife. You want to be in the scene without having to go drive an hour where you're unproductive twice a day and be out of the, out of commission, right? So if you really want to think about solving the housing supply problem, 
maybe the best answer is actually to focus on things like self-driving cars and vertical takeoff vehicles because all of a sudden it becomes feasible for somebody to live what's today 30 minutes or an hour outside the city and still have the same convenience of access. And by working on something like self-driving cars, you actually open up so much land. If you, if you have flown over a city, you see it. It's like a little tiny dense bubble of buildings and then just empty space. We don't have a space yeah. problem, right? It's just that nobody wants to get to commute one to two hours a day distracted from anything else just to get into work. If you could suddenly be in the city in 10 minutes or sit in a vehicle where it's like a portable workspace or work remotely like we're now seeing from COVID, all of a sudden the requirement to live in that density changes, your space to build changes, and you could five, six, 10x the supply of housing in an affordable way, right? But not many people are talking about affordable housing supply as an issue of vertical takeoff vehicles or self-driving cars or, or transportation, right? And I think that's where you can create win-win-win solutions again and where we need more of what used to be Silicon Valley's capital focused on. Yeah, wow. So I have uh, a couple of final questions for you uh, and, and we'll wrap things up. But, you know, one thing you mentioned early on in our conversation was that, you know, you got to see your parents witness sort of a true American dream story. I, I mean, I did as well. I mean, I saw my parents come from nothing. You know, my dad, you know, built a job as a professor. And I remember thinking, you know, as a kid, I'm like, I don't want to be a professor. Like, I want to be rich. And now I look at my parents' life and think, you know what? They have it pretty damn good. Um, I definitely didn't value it for what it was worth. But you mentioned that you know, people in your generation, and I think I'm kind of like right in that in between, that opportunity isn't available to us in the way that it was before. And there's almost this sort of, you know, loss of optimism that young people have about what's possible in their future. You know, one, what do you say to those people, particularly the ones that are coming out of college, they're, you know, watching, you know, a world in disarray with a pandemic, civil unrest and just shit falling apart? Yeah, I think the sad reality is our generation will be the first generation as of now to be poorer than our parents in American history. That's bullshit, right? That should not be the case. And I think the answer is like we can sit back and do nothing about it and run this rat race, or we can continue together to do what we're best at, right? We're the generation of the greatest innovations of this kind of modern era, right? I mean, look at how, for better or for worse, companies like Facebook and Apple and Google, they've all transformed uh the world doesn't know it. I mean, imagine if we could do that for the problems that actually matter now. And so I guess, like, the truth is, if we don't do anything, that is going to be the case. Um, but I do think that we have an opportunity to do something about it. And, like, one of the things that I think is going to be the most important problem to solve is giving millennials and Gen Z access to home ownership. Because despite some of the fears that came from 08, crisis and, and around home ownership, it's still the only truly levered form of equity that most people in this country can have. And it's also the greatest driver of compounded wealth and growth and frankly, generational wealth transfer that people can have access to. <clears throat> and so if we don't give people a path to home ownership, we're going to see really, really terrible inequality as only a handful of people are 
in our generation can afford that lifestyle that our parents had. And the rest are still living paycheck to paycheck, paying off student loans and more, you know, other debt for the rest of their life. Right. And so I just, I cannot emphasize and stress enough the urgency um, for us to find innovative and new solutions to these problems. Mm. So I have two final questions for you. Did you grow up watching your parents go from being, you know, Indian immigrants to being extremely wealthy? Like, you know, basically you fall into the 1%. I wonder what that did, you know, for your own perception of the value of money and wealth. And also how how has that changed with age in your own life? Well, I guess it's a little bit, tricky to answer that question largely because despite having achieved a lot of financial success, our parents were still quite tight on money. Like we don't have access to that money. It doesn't, it hasn't changed my ability. You know, it's, it was still a fight growing up to buy a pair of $50 jeans versus the gap jeans, you know? So you know, call that just the culture of coming from nothing, <laughs> yeah. you know, or whatever. But that, uh, <laughs> that, that did it, um, for, you know, for better or for worse, I didn't really get the benefit of a lot of that, um, growing up. Right. Uh, but yeah. I did get the benefit of was the exposure and the learnings that came from that type of platform. Um, which I just, I've continued to value that education. Um, more than anything else. Mm, amazing. Wow. Uh, well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? The, I think it's the, the willingness to ask the really, really dumb, obvious questions that everyone else forgets to ask. Right. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the greatest innovations and change in this world comes from. It's just, taking a step back and sometimes asking why to something that everyone else takes for granted. Um, And if if more people did that, I think we'd see a lot more disruption happening in some of these spaces that affect our our daily lives. Incredible. Wow. Um, Well, I can see why Bridget recommended you. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything else that you're up to? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's always um, just kind of a wild journey to have these convos. But you can find uh, some of the work we're doing at kairoshq.com. That's K-A-I-R-O-S-H-Q.com or um, finding me on Instagram. But thanks again for having me, man. This is uh, it's exciting. I can't listen to, to your other stories and hear uh, how to find another career path for myself. <laughs> Absolutely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.